The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, and welcome to Tech Trader on Barron's Live. I'm Barron's Associate Editor, Eric Sabitz. I'm happy to welcome to the stage today, Ryan Jacob, the CEO of Jacob Internet Funds. Ryan has been investing in the internet sector uh, uh, longer than almost anyone. Uh, he's, his mutual fund uh, management days go back to the bubble years, which he uh, which he survived. Uh, uh, and uh, And now we face another rough moment in the markets. And uh, we're excited to, uh, to talk to you, Ryan. Thanks for being with us. No, thanks for having me. So Ryan, you do have this long experience uh, of, of managing through difficult moments in the market. Uh, and that includes not just, you know, the bubble years of 20, uh, 20 years ago, but uh, of course the great uh, recession and some other difficult moments along the way. I, I wonder if you could start by maybe giving us a little bit of a uh, an overview of how you're feeling about the macro situation and then how you apply it to stock picks. And you take a pretty broad view of what of what um, uh, what you look at, small caps, large caps. You take a broad, um, uh, broad look. So talk a little bit about the, you know, the higher level view that you have right now. Sure. Well, first off, like you mentioned, uh, you know, my experience really started back in the late 1990s, kind of at really the birth of the Internet. Uh, part of the reason I uh, got my first portfolio manager job was based on my experience following all these new IPOs, all these new Internet companies, and then kind of seeing that from the ground up. So it is kind of funny when you hear people compare periods today like then. And I always joke that, you know, usually those people didn't really experience that because it's it's really hard to say that it matches that uh, level of enthusiasm again as uh exciting as new technologies are uh you know the internet itself was pretty groundbreaking and everyone investors included were just trying to figure out exactly um you know how that was going to impact their lives where there may be good investment opportunities um and it, it was just something that we probably won't see matched uh you know it, it could be it may not even be in our lifetime so um, and then, like you said, also, you know, we've been through multiple market cycles um, since the late 90s, the dot-com bust, a recovery in the mid-2000s, the financial collapse, um, you know, then a period of more calm and then uh, COVID and uh, now the challenges we have today. Um, fundamentally, as managers, we're, we're stock pickers. I mean, we're, we're investing in companies. Um, unfortunately, uh, you can't kind of ignore what's happening in the macro. And uh, when the macro environment's difficult, you know, we have to make adjustments um, and uh, it kind of, you know, adjust to conditions. This, this, this scenario is a bit unique uh, where we don't have as much experience as, as a situation like this where uh, we do have inflation concerns. And uh, in, in some ways, it's really unprecedented for even people that have been in the markets for 30 or 40, 50 years mm -hmm. to have, uh, you know, kind of coming out of COVID, we just had so many distortions in the economy, how they're affecting the economy today, how they're working themselves out. Where we see today coming into this year, um, and it's been obviously a very difficult year, um, we thought that 
<clears throat> we were hoping, I guess, that, that things would get worked out a bit quicker than they really have. Uh, mm -hmm. There were a lot of the problems we have today were born during that COVID period. And it's just taken us longer to really uh, kind of uh, reach an equilibrium, whether we're talking about uh, economic growth, whether we're talking about the labor market, whether we're talking about inflationary pressures. Um, I think what we're seeing so far is with, you know, the, it's easy to kind of criticize what the Fed's done this year. Um, but to be fair, again, a lot of people did feel, a lot of economists felt that this was something that was going to be able to be worked out in the first half. And then obviously in February with the war in Ukraine, that threw another monkey wrench right. into the situation. And everyone would agree that uh, inflation is very pervasive, but uh, energy has really kind of been the biggest pain point. Uh, and it's had a bit of a ripple effect across other areas. So, um, but I, I do think, or we do think that the Fed action so far and, and what they're doing now, they're having the desired effect. It's clearly cooling off the economy. I think at this point, uh, we may be in a technical recession this quarter, we'll find out soon. Um, but it is having the desired effect of cooling down the economy. Part of the inflation issues are on the demand side. And then, you know, with the labor market, uh, you know, the labor market is really um, uh, pretty unprecedented in terms of the um, participation rates and uh, kind of this low, you know, it, we're having just a hard time uh, really kind of just uh, filling available jobs. Mm -hmm. So um, in that sense, you know, having a bit of the pressures off the labor market also are probably beneficial. So, um, but it's painful. And uh, so, um, you know, again, we're focused primarily on technology or, or, you know, aggressive growth companies across other sectors as well. But you know, these are areas that tend to be somewhat uh, inured by what's happening on the macro level um, mm -hmm. because they tend to be um, uh, core uh, strategic investments for these companies. So, um, but again, it's in the macro environment, you can't really... Uh, ignore it completely. You just have to try to navigate situation. You know, our feeling is the markets have probably overreacted a bit thinking that the Fed was going to be uh, too aggressive. But I think because in the last few months, what we've seen with the economy cooling down um, and uh, a pretty sharp decline in commodity prices over the last four or five weeks, uh, we think those inflation expectations and then the expectations, even more importantly, to what the Fed's going to going to do um, we'll, we'll, we'll kind of come back more in line. And I think it, it puts us in a pretty good spot for the second half. So when, when you look at, um, uh, valuations for internet stocks, um, you know, and obviously if you go back, say to November, when the market kind of peaked, uh, for tech stocks, uh, many names are down 30, 40, 60, 70, 80%, like huge, huge declines, the, the question, of course, that, uh, that that you face, that every portfolio manager faces, is in which cases are the stocks cheap as opposed to simply cheaper, right? So, like, but they are by definition cheaper, uh, unless the, uh, say, the E has fallen apart, the, the PE. But, uh, but so the stocks are cheaper, but do you feel like they you're, you're seeing bargain opportunities here are you feeling cautious about doing that like how do you how do you feel about valuations here so it's a great question I, I think the general consensus is that multiples are cheap but there's risks like you said on the earning side and we're going to find out quickly we're entering earning season now 
uh, how much uh, I, I think there's there. I think prices are reflecting um, that there's going to be significant guide downs in earnings. Uh, so the question is going to be how much. Uh, certain companies will be affected more than others. Certain companies are. Um, I do think we'll see a little bit of a phenomenon, and we saw this more dramatically during COVID, where there'll be winners and losers. So some will clearly be much more affected than others. Um, and uh, but when you look at valuations, you're right in saying that um, a lot of these valuations have come down. But then you know even companies that we own, some of these companies still aren't making money. Maybe they're trading at five, six, seven times revenue. Um, a lot of investors would argue that's not cheap. So it has to be kind of looked at based on what that market opportunity is and what the growth expectations are. So I would argue that buying a company at seven times revenue that has near-term growth uh, over 50% and longer-term growth potential over 30% is -hmm. cheap. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and that's just our universe and how, you know, we look at companies and the, you're right. These were companies that last year were trading at over 20 times revenue. Right. So, uh, which, which, 40. yeah. So it's, it's, um, you know, it, you have to look and there are other companies we own where the growth expectations are much more modest. And for that reason, um, you know, a valuation of seven or eight times EBITDA, which some people may think is cheap, uh, doesn't look as attractive to us. Okay, so I want to. Uh, I've I've been looking through some of the uh, stocks that you uh, hold in the portfolio. You, uh, uh, conveniently enough, post them on your uh, website. Um, and uh, and I want to. I'm going to cherry pick a few names to uh, to have you uh, talk about. So uh, one, I can't resist uh, asking you to talk about Twitter, uh, which you own a uh, have owned a stake in. Um, Twitter's in a in a very strange and uh, complicated situation here as they try and. Uh, convince the Delaware Chancery Court to force Elon to buy the company. How are you feeling about Twitter here? We continue to hold the stock. Do you think there's value to be had? How do you think about it? Well, I don't want to bury the lead, but we actually sold our last remaining Twitter after we did. Um, But I'll I'll give you a little bit of a history, kind of how we came into it, and then kind of what our feelings are. But we... um, it was basically after Elon confirmed that he was going to uh, try to pull out of the deal and it was mm-hmm. going to turn into more of a legal situation. Um, we had, it was, you know, a, probably a half a percent position at that point. So it was pretty small, but it's no longer in the portfolio. We've been shareholders Twitter for actually several years. We've just always felt that Twitter, um, Twitter is one of these classic cases that on the financials uh, always looked expensive, but based on the potential and the monetization opportunity, we thought was cheap. So, um, and I think we were in the minority for a long time. And then uh, obviously uh, once uh, Elon made the bid for the company, um, you know, the valuation became much more full, obviously, Mm -hmm. and kind of reflected that. And so uh, we did sell a a vast majority of our position uh, a few weeks after the, um, well, what actually what happened was he first made an equity stake. We thought there was a very good chance he was gonna make a bid for the company. Once he did, we sold a majority of our shares. And then uh, still held on to some and honestly still felt that he would, even if there would be a bit of a negotiation on price, that he would push forward with the deal. So we were a bit surprised that he was going to take the legal route, which we think is uh, unfortunately pretty flimsy. And then we just basically sold the rest of that position. Um, You know, it's really hard. You know, when you get in these kind of legal situations, it's very, very hard to predict. And uh, so, um, yeah, that's the reason reason uh... we moved on. Yeah, it becomes less about 
security analysis and more about uh, forecasting. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I mean, uh, you know, honestly, if just if I had to make a decision, I would think that it's probably still a decent value here. It's just not something that we feel that we have any level of confidence that we could keep it as an investment. Okay, um, I'm going to ask you about a little bit of a painful one. Um, uh, you may be able to guess where I, I'm going here, uh, but you've owned a stake in Voyager, uh, the the cryptocurrency uh, exchange um, uh, platform, which is uh, which has been a terrible uh, situation. They've gotten hurt by a uh, by a, a, a third party by hedge fund that basically um, collapsed. How are you feeling? Are you, do you still own that? Have you gotten rid of what's left? I mean, it's still, I think the stock's trading at pennies um, at this point. Yeah. Uh, well, so um, this is one actually we sold, thankfully, prior to the bankruptcy filing. Yeah, <laughs> um, so, yeah. But still, I mean, it was a pretty significant loss for us this year. However, uh, last year it was actually one of our uh, largest positions and, and uh, we did tremendously well in, 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 the, in the stake. And, uh, yeah, the, the, what attracted us to this company primarily was um, this was a small, uh, smaller broker platform, but run by a very experienced management team led by uh, um, uh, Steve Ehrlich, who was a senior executive at E-Trade mm -hmm. uh, 20 plus years ago, was really there when um, E-Trade kind of, and you know, back then actually online stock trading was new <laughs> and, uh, you know, kind of everyone was trying to basically, you know, ramp up their platforms and um, he came from an operations background and a actually a compliance background too. So we thought that um, you know he was taking um, a prudent uh, you know prudent growth steps for the company, and they actually they did avoid um, the problems with uh, Terra and the mm -hmm. algorithmic stable coins. They never even offered them on their platform, um, and uh, the um, uh, issue with Celsius it was another. Uh, there've been problems, but where they There's got caught, series of problems, right? Yeah, and uh, where they got caught was um, with this three hours capital, um, where they had, uh, and this is this is something that we knew, like in terms of counterparty risk, mm -hmm. um, it, it was probably a bigger risk than let's say earnings or losses in a particular quarter. But this idea of having some sort of counterparty risk where liquidity could be an issue, and somehow, and honestly, we haven't really gotten a, a good explanation yet on this, that they had uh, over 600 million in uh, counterparty uh, exposure to three hours capital. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, to, to put themselves in that situation, to have that level of exposure, once we found out, we knew that this was going to be a problem and we sold the position almost immediately. Um, and that was, and a few weeks after that is when kind of uh, they had to, you know, it became clear that they weren't going to have the liquidity and had to file for bankruptcy. Uh, it's really it, it's unfortunate, and and we were very surprised that they would. If if it would have been, uh, you know, in terms of the counterparty risk, um, sixty million in exposure, it's something they could have easily overcome. Right. Being having over six hundred million to a hedge fund like this, it really just questions their level of risk management, and um, right. and it's really it's it's a shame. I mean, Voyager will uh, after the restructuring, they'll probably come out of this, but as a shareholder. Um, at, at that point, it was kind of an easy decision. Right. Okay. Do you have, are there other, uh, do you currently have any other plays in the crypto space? Uh, we do. Uh, actually, our biggest holding and one we feel most comfortable with 
um, is uh, Silvergate Capital, which actually reported this morning. I haven't had the opportunity to listen to the conference call yet, but um, this is a federally um, regulated bank that, that developed a uh, exchange network to allow 24-7, uh, basically, crypto transactions. You know, in the banking world, you know, you deal with, you know, seven hours a day, five days a week. Well, in, in crypto, you have to really have uh, the ability to kind of on-ramp and off-ramp transactions, you know, 24-7. So, um, and they were very early, um, very early in terms of, you know, uh, moving into kind of to fill this void, really, that the financial service industry wasn't going to address because they obviously don't want to get involved with mm -hmm. larger banking organizations with cryptocurrencies and, you know, what's involved there. So it gave them a great opportunity. And them and another company, Signature Bank, have become really the leaders in terms of these exchange networks. And uh, even though uh, volumes are down year over year, quarter to quarter, the volume growth is very impressive. And then, um, and then kind of the, the other thing that's interesting with, with the Silvergate is because they are a bank and because they have low cost deposits, um, you know, we feel that interest rates will probably continue to move higher. Uh, their net interest margins continue to widen. Uh, they pay almost no money out on those crypto deposits. And so the more that they can collect, um, you know, with higher interest rates, it just goes right to the bottom line. So uh, they have the traditional banking revenues there, the exchange network, which they're not even charging for right now. They're just trying to promote more, uh, more institutions to basically bolt onto the network and trying to promote more. At some point they will, I'm sure, charge uh, uh, some sort of fees or they do a little bit, but I mean like more meaningful fees. Right now, they're just really trying to promote the growth of the, uh, the network. And uh, so uh, it's it's one that we still like quite a bit, even with all the volatility we're seeing uh, in the crypto space. We do think there'll be a winner. Uh, they've also one other interesting thing about Silvergate they were in the news on is uh, they actually bought the DM assets from Facebook, and and they intend to uh, have a stable coin out soon. And uh, we believe that because you know again with what we saw with the algorithmic stable coins and all the other turmoil in cryptocurrencies right now is that a cryptocurrency that is uh, sponsored by a federally regulated bank will probably have um, you know, so a lot of, a lot of uh, allure for people that, that are really concerned about safety. Got it. I would note, by the way, uh, I was just checking while we were uh, chatting and uh, the stock is actually up about 19% this morning on the earnings. So um, uh, people, people are understandably relieved that, yeah. um, yeah, so that's it's actually and uh, one other thing I'll mention about cryptocurrencies because it's this you may find this interesting, but <clears throat> from the very beginning, we knew that there was uh, different systemic risks being involved. In, you know, when you're investing in cryptocurrencies, so where we we would limit in our portfolio uh, to basically no more than fifteen percent exposure mm -hmm. to cryptocurrencies, as much as we like these companies. And uh, you know, because because there's this kind of existential risk that you can't really quantify. Uh, the, the analogy I try to give people is that, you know, we started investing in Chinese companies probably over two decades ago now. And we took the same approach, which is um, we want exposure in this space. We want exposure when it comes to Chinese internet companies or technology companies. It's clearly going to be the largest economy in the world someday. Um, and uh, there are great opportunities here. But how do we deal with this idea that, you know, at, at some point, you know, uh, you have this risk 
Right, which we've um, seen over the last you know, 12 months or so. So rather than saying we're not going to invest in these companies at all or having no guardrails in terms of the level of investments we make, uh, we came up with basically an idea of trying to limit that exposure in the portfolios just to keep an eye on it that it doesn't get over that 10 to 15% range. And uh, we kind of took that same template with the cryptocurrencies. We, we felt that we didn't want it to dominate the portfolios or have too much of a um, you know, like Voyager is a great example, but just kind of limiting our exposure in case, you know, something that obviously situation, uh, you know, we were surprised, you know, went wrong. I mean, it, you know, and um, you don't want that to really kind of cripple the portfolio. Um, but then on the other hand, you also realize that digital currencies, at least we believe, are here to stay for the long term. And uh, so we want to have exposure in this area. Just not too much exposure right. to account for that systemic well, you got, risk. You got a good lesson from Voyager. <laughs> for sure. So I want to touch on a few other things. Um, one one idea that you had mentioned to me, which I think is interesting, is that you've been sort of um, uh, dabbling with sort of broken SPAC deals. Now, and what we're talking about here are not not like unpartnered SPACs, not like just, you know, uh, I don't know what to call those bear specs, or whatever. but, but deals like companies that have come public through SPAC, uh, through SPAC mergers, those combinations have often sold off. You know, you often, you know, generally had SPACs priced at $10. Now you have a whole bunch of stocks trading at like $3. And uh, so you mentioned uh, to me a few of them. Why don't you just kind of run through a couple that you like in that? Oh, sure. So like you said, uh, <clears throat> you know, it's one of the things I think people are curious about that, you know, they assume that all these SPACs uh, are all, um, you know, basically, uh, um, you know, business plans without businesses. <laughs> yeah. And there were actually quite a few that came out last year that were actually real businesses. And for different reasons, uh, the SPAC route was more efficient than the traditional IPO route. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the one that really sticks out, this is actually, you may remember this one, this is a holding of ours back uh, probably six, seven years ago, uh, C-Vent uh, mm-hmm. went private. Uh, C-Vent is the largest um, uh, technology provider for companies looking to put on uh, live events, now mm-hmm. virtual and hybrid events too. But when they started, it was really live events and they would be the company that coordinate all of your registration and technology around um, putting together those events for uh, mostly Fortune 500 companies, but also smaller companies as well. Uh, Vista Equity Partners took them private. I think it was back in 2016, and um, and it, we we thought it was curious with Cvent. You know, they came out last year. We were still in the middle of COVID, and you think a live event company? Why? You know, so I was curious. You know, like well, if thing. I was a private equity company, I don't know if I would. I think I would wait in terms of trying to come out into the markets because I'm not going to get the kind of valuation that you would expect. So that that got me curious, and when I first looked at it. It actually looked interesting, but it didn't look uh, terribly attractive from a valuation standpoint. But again, this was $10 plus a share. Eventually, when these SPACs went out of favor, um, even the low quality and the high quality ones just all got um, just absolutely destroyed. And uh, so Cvent, we, we know from experience, is, is a very real company. Uh, they actually got stronger when they were private. They merged with another larger company as well. And so, um, and uh, we also felt that. Uh, at the much reduced valuation uh, that because we do expect live events to come back pretty strongly over the next year or two that, uh, you know, we're getting a really discounted price on a solid, solid business. So, um, so Cvent, you know, stands out for that reason, but uh, there are a few others, uh, you know, uh, we own uh, 
uh, Rover, which is a, actually a dog walking sitting company. Yep. People compare it to like a, like a pet Yelp or, you know, something along because right. it, it, but basically you're, you know, and this is an area actually that's um, growing quite a bit. Uh, and also uh, this was another one that just absolutely got destroyed um, and kind of chucked aside valuation wise, it's profitable company um, that uh, is still growing uh, uh, quickly. And right. uh, I think trading and, at around three-ish maybe. Yeah, yeah. So when these companies, again, at $10 a share, it's a different story than when some of these companies are trading at three or $4 a share. Yeah, four and a half. Uh, Ro yeah, and Rover has the benefit. Rover also kind of like Cvent, when everyone was at home, you didn't really need a dog walker. You didn't really need a pet sitter. You weren't traveling anywhere. Right. So. Um, uh, they're going to also benefit from kind of this, they should have a very, very good year this year. And, uh, uh you know, what, kind of coming out of COVID. One other one that I know you, uh, you've mentioned is, uh, next door, uh, which is a name that probably some people are familiar with, uh, sort of local social, uh, service, which also, um, has had a similar fate so far as a public company. Yeah. I mean, again, it's, it's most people next door that people are familiar with. It's really kind of the de facto, um, neighborhood social gathering place. <laughs> um, and, uh, uh, it's actually run by the CEO is a former CFO of, uh, uh, square. Um, right. so, uh, yeah, Sarah Fryer. So, uh, they actually have a very good management team and, uh, we, we've been pretty impressed so far in terms of, uh, you know, the kind of how they've kind of navigated, uh, the last year or so. And, uh, Again, it's another one that, again, at $10 plus didn't really, you know, it was interesting to us, but not compelling. But again, um, you know, at these prices, um, we just felt that this is, a, this is a very solid company that on a local basis, you know, local has always been kind of one of those from the early days in the internet, uh, one of the toughest codes to crack in terms mm -hmm. of how, you know, because everyone understands that on a local level, uh, you know, it's very valuable to companies to be able to advertise these people, especially local service providers. And, uh, and, and Nextdoor has kind of carved out this niche with, with not a lot of competition. They have some competition, but it's not really, it may be more safety or crime oriented than, than right. kind of more, more community. And uh, so. Um, yeah. And know, I, I think yeah. Uh, sadly enough, they, uh, for me, they, uh, they benefit a little from sort of the decline in local uh, newspaper uh, in the local newspaper industry where, you know, many communities are just don't have functioning newspapers anymore. And this gives an opportunity for people to. That's true. No, it's, it's, uh, I mean, that's, we could, you know, that's a longer conversation over the last yes. 20 years. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. You know. So I want to check, um, um, we have just a few minutes left, uh, time's flying by here, but I want to, uh, kind of run through just some larger names. So you've, you've, um, you've over, when I look back, this is like the May 31st portfolio. So some things have made change, but you had a you had a, a few things that were sort of large, sort of enterprise software-ish kind of names: Mongo, Twilio, Block. Uh, there may be a couple of others that I'm missing here. Zillow. Um, give me a little bit of flavor for how you're thinking about some of the larger cap names in the portfolio. Well, I, I just you may find this interesting, kind of through omission. Um, we actually, in the last several weeks, I think we sold the last of our Alphabet or Google position. Um, and it's, it's, I've talked about this for a while and, and um, how we've slowly moved away from our largest and mega cap uh, positions. And 
I feel like getting rid of Alphabet was kind of the last one. And we still have Alibaba, the Chinese company, which which right. clearly would still be kind of a large mega cap name. But but that's it. I mean, we just feel right now that that's not where the value is in the market. Um, the best values in the market are really in these small and mid cap names. And the names you mentioned, I would consider more mid cap generally. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I mean, they're mid cap, large cap, kind of in that range. And uh, um, but it's the larger companies, the ones that on the surface look like they're the cheapest. We think they're the ones that are going to have the biggest issue with multiple compression. I, I know it's a popular viewpoint that it's the really expensive names that uh, are the ones that are going to have the biggest valuation compression here. I would argue that you know if we're having moderating growth. Um, you want companies that can overcome contracting multiples. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we tend to focus on those companies still growing 30, 40, in some cases, 50% annually. Uh, they can handle uh, multiple contraction of 10 or 20% that you might get with rising interest rates. I would argue the larger cap companies, and these are companies that are maybe growing high single digits, low double digits, they're going to have a harder time. I don't think it's a coincidence that after the... Um, the 2007, 2008 period, it's just been a relentless outperformance of large caps. And when you look at that period, um, there's one uh, common thread, which is a relentless decline in interest rates. And so, you know, when you're going to pay a higher multiple for companies that have steady cash flow and earnings, Mm -hmm. you're going to pay a higher multiple, the lower that interest rate is. Well, conversely, as those interest rates rise, you're going to pay less of a multiple. And so you're going to need that growth to overcome that contraction. Uh, we feel more comfortable that's going to happen in the small and mid cap names. And then just one other point on this, because I think it's, you know, I always, one of the things I always tell the rest of my team here is that um, uh, direction's easy in this business. Timing's the hard part. So um, eventually we'll, eventually we'll come out of this. You know, right. there's a reason why bear markets are counted in months and bull markets are counted in years. Right. We'll get we'll get through this. Um, maybe next month, maybe six more months. It's not not really that important. But what's important is that how, what is that going to look like? So in in some ways, the last twelve months or so has been very traditional the way bear markets unfold, which is it tends to be start with the smallest, most speculative names, and then kind of move its way up and eventually infect the largest, biggest names. And if you think about it, that's really what's happened since last spring up until January. Mm-hmm. And now, so our feeling is that eventually, and again, we don't know when, but when this happens, where we come out of this bear market, it'll probably be led by those smaller, more speculative names. And it also, you know, getting back to the SPACs, or, you know, it also makes me uh, even more comfortable with this idea of shifting some of this larger cap money into some of these companies that have been kind of orphaned. Um, we do feel, and, and then actually, I feel even better in the last, really, you know, you have to really look closely, but in the last two or three weeks, since we kind of moved into July, we've actually seen like little signs that some of these smaller companies are actually acting a bit better mm-hmm. than the larger caps. So um, anyway, I just think when you look at kind of the near term and then the, kind of that long-term trend of large cap outperformance, in, in the same way that bonds can outperform stocks over certain periods of time, we know over the long term stocks will outperform bonds. Right. You know, but there can be as, it could be a 10, 15 year period where bonds outperform stocks. So if we've been through this extended period where large caps have consistently outperformed for you know, like really close to 15 years, 
um, it would not surprise me in the least if we finally get a situation. So then you say like, well, what would, what would preface that? And that is, um, I do think rising interest rates, uh, just one other quick thing. I know we're running short of time, but you know, cause you know, people look back to the seventies things, 30, 40, 50 years ago. Let, let's go back 20 years ago, 2000, between 2002 and 2007, Mm-hmm. Uh, the Fed funds rate went from one to, I think, five and a half percent between 2002 and 2007. People forget that. Um, back then, people weren't worried about longer dated uh, assets. And are they going to yeah. No, 2002, 2007? That was the last extended period that small caps outperformed. I don't think it was a coincidence. And yes. uh, so, if we, yeah. So if we see we actually did a white paper uh, that's on our website, you can feel free at, at uh Jacob uh, mutual funds.com that kind of goes into this idea that when you look back over the last 50 or 60 years, small caps have generally outperformed in a rising interest rate environment. So if you believe we are heading into a rising interest rate environment, you know, we do think kind of a small mid cap focus makes sense. But again, people just forget that it wasn't that long ago that we had a pretty significant consistent rise in that fed funds rate. And it was a fabulous period for stocks. Okay. So let's just do, uh, just let's wrap up with one, uh, one more stock pick, something, uh, one of your larger holdings that you'd like to uh, talk about, uh, pick a favorite. Um, I know you love me equally. We do. Um, Yeah, it's it's really hard. Uh, You mentioned Mongo. Uh, We'd actually been cutting back a little bit because of valuation, but, you know, when when you look at kind of this, this new kind of SQL world of, of database, you know, we're dealing with so much data and, and having that kind of flexibility of, of an open source solution that Mongo provides is, uh, it's just one that has a, a, a really terrific TAM in front of it. So, um, but and another one actually that uh, Cloudflare, which is a content delivery network, a security mm-hmm. company dealing with edge computing, uh, it was another one, by the way, Mongo too, were very, very highly valued companies, you know, were trading at 10, 15 right, very times high. revenue a year ago. And obviously the stocks are down, you know, 40, 50, 60% at this point. And uh, the opportunity hasn't changed in both cases. So, um, you know, and these are also more core. I think in the near term, we have a little more risk or in terms of discretionary spend. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, obviously anything tied with marketing or uh, ad spending is probably going to be uh, a little more at risk here. Mm-hmm. So um, when you look at some of these larger infrastructure plays, again, um, we feel much more confident that growth is going to stay intact. We do have a question from a reader about Twilio, which you have owned uh, a substantial position over time. Do you still, are you still bullish on Twilio? Oh, we are. It's still one of our larger positions. Um, this is another one where I, I, I don't remember exactly where the valuation sits today, but I want to say it's somewhere around three or four times revenue, which, which still kind of astounds me. Uh, Twilio is almost like a utility. Uh, Twilio kind of really got into the mainstream during COVID when companies, you know, all of a sudden, you know, the restaurant had to be able to communicate with their customers for curbside pickup or like everyone all of a sudden that didn't have that digital capability that were maybe thinking about adding it immediately went to add it. And then obviously, once you uh, add that kind of capability to your business, again, any small business really had to kind of have that communication kind of uh, right and they provide like those connection. tools that kind of embed in in websites to be able to i mean uber was one of their first customers so obviously you know when you get those text messages or uber's five minutes away that's that's usually run by twilio and uh, but really most it's not just you know ride sharing it's really across every industry now 
where they want to have that uh, uh, text kind of communication ability with their customers. And uh, so they were a COVID beneficiary that still actually did pretty well. They did their volumes dropped off after COVID, but again, like once it kind of pulled forward this uh, company, it pulled forward the demand for these kinds of services. And then mm-hmm. once companies put the time and money into it, obviously they're not, they're going to keep them. Um, and uh, that's what's happened. So, um, and Twilio is, is a company that really had, you know, they've had a few competitors over the years, but if anything, they've strengthened their position. They're, they're really pretty much the only game in town. Uh, they're even a little bit pricier than some other alternatives. But w- from what he, we hear from customers is that um, the reliability is so, so much better than any other uh, uh, potential option that uh, they're willing to pay a little bit more. So they're in a very advantageous position. Okay, so we could keep going for hours. I have like so many things I want to ask you about. I'm gonna, I will allow myself to ask you one more question, which is, uh, I want to come some, come back to something you said earlier, talking about having some exposure to China, and then you mentioned Alibaba, um, and I'm wondering if there, there's any other ways that you're current, currently playing China, which has been, you know, kind of a controversial, uh, difficult place to have your money these days. I'm, I'm uh, but I, I wonder if maybe we're at a point where it makes more sense. I, I think you can make that argument because obviously, you know, COVID for them is still a, a, a real issue. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a real issue for us, but it's even say, more not just for them. <laughs> yeah, not just for them, but even more so in terms of how it's affecting their economy. Um, so they will get past that and valuations are kind of reflecting uh, a pretty, um, you know, kind of dire situation there mm-hmm. in terms of how it's affecting their economy. Um, I, with us, <laughs> China is tricky because, like I said, uh, with China, we've tended to gravitate towards the larger companies right. because uh, from just a level of comfort. When you start delving into the smaller companies, it gets a bit more dangerous. So with our current focus away from the larger cap companies, I guess it's taken our attention away from China somewhat um, because on the smaller companies where normally we'd be looking for smaller company opportunities, in China, it's, it's really... Um, it gets even riskier. Um, so uh, it's just not, not to say that we wouldn't do it. I, I'm not sure it's necessarily a bad time, um, but uh, it's just kind of the way we're uh, looking to position ourselves now. It's just not, not our focus. Got it. Okay. Ryan, thank you so much for being with us again. I uh, very much appreciate it. And uh, we will talk again soon. There's, uh, there's so much uh, to discuss in this marketplace. Uh, Thanks to everyone for being with us today. Uh, Please join us again tomorrow. Um, Market Watch uh, Deputy uh, Personal Finance Editor Leslie Albrecht will be talking to um, one of her colleagues, Rachel uh, Beals, about uh, her new column called The Upcycler, which helps you um, uh, save and earn extra money and shrink your carbon footprint and be efficient. All those good things. Thanks to everyone for being with us. Be well, stay safe, and uh, please join us again uh, soon. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.